this is Danielle Fisher. Welcome to Melanoma Insights for Professionals, brought to you by Melanoma Institute Australia. Today's discussion focuses on the multidisciplinary management of Merkel cell carcinoma, a rare but aggressive form of non-melanoma skin cancer. We are fortunate to have several leading clinicians with us today from a range of disciplines to discuss this topic. Facilitating the discussion is Dr. Robert Rawson. Rob is a pathologist at MIA and Royal Prince Alfred Hospital. We also have Professor Angela Hong joining us today. Angela is a radiation oncologist at MIA and a clinical professor at the University of Sydney. Dr. Kerwin Shannon is also joining us for the discussion. Kerwin is a surgical oncologist and head and neck surgeon at MIA and the Chris O'Brien Lifehouse. And joining us via Zoom from Portugal is Dr. Inesh Silva. Inesh is a medical oncologist and researcher at MIA and is currently doing a fellowship at Westmead Hospital. Welcome to you all, and thank you for being with us today to share with our listeners our latest understanding of Merkel cell carcinoma and how it can be managed in the multidisciplinary setting. Rob, perhaps you could start by telling us about this highly aggressive tumour, how it's diagnosed, and what features you use to distinguish it from a benign lesion. So Merkel cell carcinomas, they're part of the group of families which are known as neuroendocrine carcinomas. And these kinds of carcinomas arise in pretty much in any body system. And Merkel cell carcinomas are primary neuroendocrine carcinomas of the skin. And it wouldn't surprise you that the historical thought was that the cell of origin was the Merkel cell. Um, and these are cells which occur in the epidermis. So we can't actually appreciate these cells in those standard sections we look at of the skin down the microscope. Uh, but they're thought to play a role in, in mechanoreception um, of the skin. But there's, I think there's a great deal of controversy now about what the actual cell of origin is of these lesions, and it's quite uncertain. But we still call them generally Merkel cell carcinomas. Some people call them primary neuroendocrine carcinomas of the skin. Now, we've spoken, I think, in another podcast about BCCs and SCCs, and Merkel cell carcinomas, I think, are on the completely other end of the spectrum in the fact that they're rare, but they're extremely aggressive tumours. A fact I, I read was about one6 per 100,000 person years is roughly the incidence rate of these lesions. And they occur in older people. So the median age of, of diagnosis is around 75 years of age. And once again, as with BCCs and SCCs, um, they're associated with immunosuppression. What causes them? There's been significant evidence, I think, over, over the years that once again, ultraviolet radiation, sun exposure is a significant risk factor for the development of these. But over the last 10 years, there's become a significant body of evidence that clonal integration of a virus called the Merkel cell polyoma virus is a sort of a different mechanism of development of these tumours. And there's increasing evidence that there's distinctive pathways for transformation. So almost two pathways for the development of, the, of these uh, really aggressive tumours. Because they're so rare, it's difficult to get a large amount of data as you do for melanoma and BCCs and SCCs. Uh, but the data we have shows that generally in America and other, in maybe in Europe, that 80% of Merkel cell carcinomas are down that polyoma virus pathway. But in Australia, it appears opposite that about 80% of the, the cases of Merkel cell carcinoma are pretty much along that pure ultraviolet radiation pathway. Clinically, once again, I'm not a clinician, so I don't see these um, except when they're taken off and sent to the laboratory. So maybe, Kerwin, you just describe briefly how you might see a, a patient who presents to you with a, a Merkel cell carcinoma, what, what it might look like to you. There is a classic appearance of Merkel cell carcinoma, this sort of purplish, pink, violaceous uh, nodule that's usually relatively smooth uh, and appears to be well-defined. But they can you know, mimic BCCs and uh, amelanotic melanomas, um, but usually the sort of pink, pink nodules would be the thing that would make me worry about Merkel. 
sort of the natural history of the disease? They describe it's been there for a while or is it a rapidly growing lesion? Well, they tend to be very rapidly growing. They're a tumour type that turns over very quickly and you know, that's brought out in their behaviour. They metastasize early and they spread rapidly. And if you're going to do baddie from Merkel, you'll generally do so you know, in, in a very short period of time after diagnosis. And as a head and neck surgeon, I tend to see see a lot of them because they do particularly occur on the face and neck and shoulders of, of elderly patients. But you do see them peripherally. You've certainly managed Merkel cell carcinomas on the lower limbs and on the arms. And so what you've described clinically is I think is really bears out what I see histologically that we see a nodule often in the dermis and extending to the subcutis. Occasionally it's got a junctional component, so it involves the epidermis. That can be a further mimicker for, for melanoma for us. And occasionally we see a completely junctional or, or a um, epidermal-centred uh, Merkel cell carcinoma without an invasion, but that's a, a very rare occurrence. And so what do these cells look like? As you mentioned, these are incredibly aggressive, high-grade tumours, and that's what the histology looks like. And they look the same as all other um, neuroendocrine tumours. The most classical neuroendocrine carcinoma is a small cell carcinoma of lung, and, and these look exactly like that. So they're cells which have very minimal cytoplasm, very hyperchromatic. And one of the most striking features we see is a huge amount of mitosis and apoptosis bearing out. This is a, a tumour which is really turning over rapidly and highly aggressive. And you can also see areas of necrosis, which once again is a, is a feature of how quickly it's turning over. And also focus of lymphovascular invasion isn't a rare feature. Uh, interestingly, we sometimes we get calls and referrals for cases where there's a component which looks like a squamous cell carcinoma within the Merkel cell carcinoma. And that's a feature which is seen in a minority, sort of 5% of cases. We see a squamous uh, differentiation within the Merkel cell carcinoma. Generally, it's something that's it's a feature, it's a pattern which we readily recognize as pathologists. But we normally prove this with a Im- basic immunohistochemical panel of normal neuroendocrine markers. Rob, do you think that's a factor of squamous cell carcinomas being common in the same patient group or do you think that this uh, tells you there's a squamous cell origin of this tumour? I think that they've proven that a number of these are actually collision tumours, that they're actually two different tumours which have collided. I know that's definitely been proven in, in, in a subset of cases, but it could be that there is stem cell along the way which can divergently differentiate into both a neuroendocrine differentiation and squamous differentiation. What's the differential diagnosis? It's really important to diagnose these lesions quickly and efficiently and communicate that to our colleagues as they are so aggressive. Usually the biggest problem we have is differentiating these lesions from a metastatic neuroendocrine carcinoma from another site, most commonly lung. And so that's normally done through clinical correlation, talking to our colleagues to make sure they don't have a lesion elsewhere. We do have an immunohistochemical stain for Merkel cell polyoma virus. So if they are down that pathway, this will stain positive. And that's further proof that it is a Merkel cell carcinoma, not a metastatic deposit. As I mentioned, they're highly aggressive tumors. And the other things we do rule out is a high-grade lymphoma, a melanoma, a high-grade sarcoma, such as Ewing sarcoma. On a small biopsy, once again, depending if it's fragmented, we might get a, a small biopsy where it could be quite difficult to differentiate between a basal cell carcinoma or a, an exo tumour, and that's why always thinking about the, these lesions is really important. Prognosis, um, so immunosuppression is a key part of the prognostic behaviour of, of these tumours. Once again, it's so rare that we don't really have a formal grading system, but looking at things such as the size, the depth of invasion, and the central lymph node positivity, that's a bit debatable, I think, and, and my clinical colleagues will discuss that uh, going forward. So uh, Kerwin, surgery is the main uh, treatment for most Merkel cell carcinomas. How does the location of the tumour affect what kind of surgery you do? Uh, Rob, I want to speak with you that surgery's got a very important role in the management of Merkel cell carcinoma, but uh, there'll be others around the table who might argue with the, the claim that it's the main treatment. It's certainly very important for diagnosis. It's important for getting staging, and I'll talk about uh, sentinel node, as you've mentioned, 
Uh, there is a role in the management of local regional disease. And even after definitive management in the times of recurrence, then surgery is very important. It is obviously the way you get your pathology is by us taking a biopsy and there is some argument about what the extent of that biopsy might need to be. But there is evidence to suggest that if you at least excise to clear margins um, that there are better rates of local control. But you don't necessarily need to do wide excision like you do with melanoma, for example. And we do really consider that the definitive treatment of, of even the primary site and potentially of even macroscopic nodal disease is in fact radiotherapy. But uh, from a surgical point of view, yes, I would be aiming to get clear margins to help establish the pathological microstaging of the disease. It does give us an opportunity to get tissue in a disease where we're still trying to figure out how it works and being able to study that tissue is very important. But we shouldn't be chasing margins on a Merkel cell carcinoma to the extent that it's going to delay them getting to the radiation uh, therapy that they probably need. There is no doubt that sentinel node biopsy is an important staging tool. Whereas in melanoma, a sentinel node biopsy was introduced to try and identify those people who would benefit from early treatment of their regional lymph nodes. Given that nodal metastasis in Merkel cell carcinoma is very common, as many as 50% um, as at presentation might be there, uh, we use sentinel node biopsy more to try and determine those people who can have treatment of their regional node basins avoided. <laughs> Um, to try and minimise morbidity and to leave a treatment mortality up the road for other things that they might need. The false negative rates of sentinel node biopsy are considered very high in Merkel cell carcinoma, but overall it's probably in the order of 17 to 20%. But if you don't uh, give radiation therapy to people who've got negative node biopsies and one in five of those recur, well, they can still be treated and four out of five people will, can potentially avoid treatment they weren't necessarily going to benefit from. Uh, so Merkel cell carcinomas, as Cohen's described, they're highly radiosensitive and often exhibit dramatic responses to moderate doses. Angela, is radiation therapy more commonly used as a primary treatment or is it more often used in the adjuvant setting? You're correct to say that a Merkel cell carcinoma is a very radiosensitive tumour. Um, this is in comparison with, say, melanoma, BCC or SCC. They are other radiosensitive primary skin lesions as well. Um, so we use radiotherapy in both the definitive and adjuvant setting. Um, so for someone with a small primary and if Kerwin can easily remove that with a clear margin, we do generally add in radiotherapy to a wider field to reduce the risk of local recurrence as well as intransit recurrence. Um, they do have a high propensity for local recurrence as well as nodal metallicis. If someone have a large lesion where a complete excision will require a complex reconstruction skin graft that is going to delay the start of adjuvant therapy, then we'll advocate that uh, perhaps definitive radiotherapy has a, a role in terms of um, avoiding a major operation and you get on and start the treatment straight away for the patients. I mean, even in the setting of regional nodal metastases, uh, mm -hmm. the current guidelines would say that surgery and radiotherapy or radiotherapy are appropriate choices. And in fact, there is no evidence that the combination of treatments is uh, provides a better rate of local control than definitive radiotherapy up front. So although I'm a, a keen surgeon, I would consider the radiotherapy the treatment <laughs> and surgery is uh, very much for diagnosis, for staging and for salvage. And this highlights, I suppose, with Merkel cell carcinoma, that the lack of data we have 
um, because of how rare it is, I suppose. We're always trying to gather more data to give more evidence to what is the most effective treatment in different situations. I mean, that's very true. One of the important things about staging it pathologically is if you look at the survival curves for people with Merkel cell carcinoma, uh, when you compare the clinical staging with the pathological staging, there's about a 20% difference at five years survival. It's important to, particularly when we're doing studies, to have that information available because, for example, you give an adjuvant therapy in Merkel cell carcinoma and it comes back that their five-year survival is 55%, well, does that mean you've improved the outcome of those clinical stage one who would otherwise be at 42% or have you worsened the pathological stage ones whose survival would otherwise be 65%? And if you don't have that information available, then you can't answer that question. You can't always get the information, unfortunately, because the patient group we're looking at are generally elderly patients with lots of comorbidities and the the process of getting them a sentinel node biopsy might mean subjecting to anaesthetics and hospitalisation that they might not be appropriate for. But when we can get the information, I think it's important to get it at every opportunity. A conventional chemotherapy has demonstrated a limited durable response in the treatment of metastatic Merkel cell carcinoma. But recent advances in immunotherapeutics are likely to have a major impact on the management of this disease. Anesh, uh, can you talk us through the emerging therapies that, uh, that you were looking at and which are looking so promising in this area? Um, as you, you said, chemotherapy, uh, again, like in fact, has uh, amazing response rates, but very short duration of response and important toxicities. Again, regimens normally used to be pattern-based uh, regimens. So the field moved on, and definitely now immunotherapy is a standard of care for locally advanced or metastatic Merkel cell carcinoma patients. And we use Avelumab. So Avelumab is uh, anti-PDL1. So we are used to anti-PD-1 with nivolumab, pembrolizumab, semiplimab. So this is slightly different, even though the concept is very similar. So we are used to block PD-1. Here we are blocking PDL one which is the ligand of PD-1. So basically we are doing exactly the same. We are stimulating the immune system to fight the cancer. So we are uh, taking off a break of the normal immune system. So do, by doing that, we are boosting the immune system and the T cells become more activated and are able to kill the cancer cells. So this is we, we use that in monotherapy. This is an IV treatment again uh, every two weeks and we use this treatment uh, in a I, so it's IV, it's anti-PDL1, and the side effects are very similar to the ones we use for uh, anti-PDL1, which are uh, any autoimmune reactions in any type of cancer. I know I'm, uh, I keep saying that, but it's very important when we discuss with the patient to prepare the patient for any type of side effects. Of course, we don't want to scare the patient, but we want to inform the patient. But keep in mind that uh, here, we are using monotherapy, and uh, when we use anti-PDL1 uh, in monotherapy, has the same with anti-PD1. The serious adverse events are not as common, um, but we always discuss about the skin toxicity, the inflammation of the colon, inflammation of the, the liver, inflammation of the lungs, inflammation of the thyroid, inflammation of the kidneys. Of course, we have to explain that. And as Karen mentioned, this is a, a very particular population. So we have elderly patients, we have immunosuppressed patients. And again, I think it's important to really understand which patient we, we have in front of us. Immunosuppressed patients are a very common and very important population to that we have to learn how to treat. One option could be 
before giving immunotherapy, so before uh, stimulating even more the immune system, one thing is to try to reduce the immunosuppression of those patients. And then for immunosuppressed patients, when we want to treat, we have really, really to discuss with the patient the risk benefit of these treatments. Thanks, Anesh. So, so you brought up this group of um, immunosuppressed patients who are at an increased risk of developing Merkel cell carcinoma. So I might turn it over to Kerwin and Angela and just talk through how uh, with these at-risk groups, how would you look at prevention strategies and management of patients in those more at-risk groups with this disease? Uh, well, obviously, we're concerned about the immunosuppressed patient group and that they're likely to do badly. And so the availability of these new systemic agents is uh, very exciting for us. But you also have the problem, particularly in the transplant patients, for example, if you start playing with the immune system in someone who's had their immune system switched off for a reason that you've then got competing risks of mortality and that needs to be handled very carefully. It's probably outside my skill set. If there is someone who may not be able to get uh, systemic therapy, then it would drive me to be a little bit more aggressive surgically because you know, although the odds are that they will recur despite appropriate surgery, there will be that group of patients who will do well. You know, I do have you know, a series of long-term survivors from Merkel cell carcinoma who've had local treatment only. So it's, it's worthwhile chasing those aggressively because if there is a, a tumour cell that you can get out, then we, we try very hard to do so if they don't have alternative treatment options. But most of the time it's with a large dose of crossed fingers. So for those patients who are immunosuppressed, they are certainly at high risk of developing distant metallicis. So no matter what we do in terms of the local treatment, surgery and radiotherapy is not going to change that pattern. <laughs> but having said that, local control is very important. Um, you don't want someone with uh, immunosuppressed come up with an uncontrolled primary that is painful, bleeding of a large nodal metallicis that are very symptomatic. So uh, local treatment, especially radiotherapy, still have a very strong role in terms of making sure that we get good local control and nodal control for this type of patients. Once again, we haven't spoken about the prevention. So we've talked about how exposure to sunlight causes the vast majority of these diseases in Australia. And I think prevention is a much better uh, and effective way of uh, treating these. So hopefully um, what we're trying to do at the Melanoma Institute through education and, and other programs across the country will help in that regard as well. So we've looked at uh, general sort of principles for this disease. And um, so now let's look at a particular case to see how it would work in practice. Uh, Anesh, you've got a case you wanted to talk about? Yes. So I have a, a 79-year-old lady with no particular like relevant background. So she's a non-smoker, non-drinker, and she lives with uh, her son, which happens to be a GP. In February 2018, she presented with a left inguinal mass, about three to four centimetres and a biopsy uh, proven poorly differentiated neonrocarine a tumor CK20 positive, so it was considered a Merkel cell carcinoma. The primary was um, not identified at that moment. So she uh, had definitive uh, therapy to the left groin and uh, hemipelvis, but Ted, unfortunately, in September 2018, there was an infield recurrence, and she underwent left inguinal lymph node dissection. So in June 2019, a PET CT scan confirmed a recurrence, in fact, in the left inguinal um, region, and she was starting on system treatment with Avelumab. She uh, tolerated very well. The only side effect was a grade one rash, nothing major at all. But in April last year, 2020, she ceased treatment in good response because of COVID. Not because she got COVID, but because of safety reasons. So uh, risk benefits, she was in good response and it was better for her to stop. 
the treatment at that moment. She was on follow-up and still in response, but the most recent PET CT scan showed that the original site of disease, in fact, is still in response, but she has two new uh, deep subcutaneous metastases. And what I would like to discuss is, of course, I could uh, restart. And this is something that is not known in terms of the medical oncology field. We are generating data on that. I guess the discussion here is, should we consider a local treatment, radiotherapy, or surgery, or uh, should we restart Evelumab, which is definitely an option? And this is mainly for the Medonks. We don't really know how long we should treat those patients up front. This patient stopped because of COVID. Otherwise, she would probably uh, still be on uh, Evelumab. And then we don't know um, the the recurrence rate in these cases um, and then the response rate after we challenge. I just want to let people know that there is a study uh, looking at that and it was going to be presented ASCO. It's a collaboration with Peter Mack, but I think it's an important data that we are all generating in collaboration. So I'd like to hear from Corwin and Angela do you think in this type of patient with uh, her age, she's a fit lady, but with this history, would you consider a therapy or surgery? Oh, this highlights a lot of the features of, of Merkel at the moment. She's an elderly patient. Um, she's had recurrence despite what would be considered appropriate and best care at the time. Uh, and you've still got a, an issue with recurrence. She's been able to be treated with new systemic agents, but still something's turned up. And, and this is one of the changing roles in surgeries that we now have a role to do salvage for oligometastases that we otherwise might not have approached before because we would have thought previously by the time they've recurred again, well, the fate is sealed and there's no point. But now you know, with people getting systemic therapy, they might respond at other sites if they're not responding at this particular site. And this is a recurrence that I think is in field. I certainly do think there is a role here for taking this out, keeps the Evalumab up the sleeve. Uh, as I say, I think this is in a radiotherapy field, but if it wasn't, then local treatment is still appropriate, whether that's surgery or radiotherapy in that context, I think is um, is good. Well, I will have a look at the area, whether it's in the radiotherapy field or not. Uh, but given that she had quite a lot of local treatment, surgery, immunodissection, and she did respond to the uh, NTPDL1 treatment, I would suggest that consider restarting the NTPDL1 therapy, monitor area very closely, and we can always go in with local treatment if she doesn't respond second time around. Yeah. And here is our problem that, that mm. both poachers are reasonable. We don't know the right answer mm. and the trials that are, that are out there with adjuvant therapies and so forth are, are very important. Exactly. Just to highlight exactly that, Corinne. So there are several clinical trials in the adjuvant setting for such an aggressive type of cancer. I think yeah, we all should think about systemic treatment in also in the adjuvant setting, not only in advanced and uh, metastatic, but also in the adjuvant setting for those patients. That's a, a fantastic case. Thanks, Anesh. I think uh, we're going to have a second case just to, to look at this rare but very interesting um, uh, malignancy. Sure. So I have a 77-year-old man uh, presented around October year 2020 with a small red lump around his left elbow. And he was actually living overseas at that time and had a local excision by the um, local GP at that time and confirmed to be a Merkel cell carcinoma. 
couple of months later, so in December year 2020, he noticed a recurrence of that red lump along the scar. He quickly returned to Sydney, and when he presented to us at MIA, he had quite a large nodule along the scar in the left elbow, about three centimeter, causing him quite a lot of pain. And on physical examination, he had um, a large mass in his left axilla. As well, very concerning for nodal spread of the Merkel cell carcinoma. We staged him with a PET CT scan and confirmed the recurrence at the primary site in the elbow region, about three centimeter, was firm, was red, inflamed, and also the large axilla uh, metathesis. Pleasingly, there was no evidence of distant metathesis on um, on the PET CT. So he was present at our weekly MDT meeting um, to discuss the best treatment option for him. We don't know whether he had clear margins at his original excision. Uh, We don't know whether he had additional local therapy or not, but it sounds as though he probably didn't. So he's recurred uh, with or without appropriate local treatment. He has loco-regional disease and it's still amenable to loco-regional treatment. As I mentioned earlier in the discussion, there's no evidence that combining the two uh, surgery and radiotherapy is better than radiotherapy alone. Um, I would think given the the rate of progression of his disease that probably getting him to definitive radiotherapy early is appropriate uh, because if he has uh, surgery and has complications and that radiotherapy is delayed, then he, he might miss an opportunity to get local regional control. And I, I would think I'd step back and be in reserve for salvage in this circumstance and try and get him treated as possible. And with definitive treatment, uh, there are, again, Inesh will probably talk to this, there are appropriate trials that he could be followed up with this systemic therapy because the concern, as Andrew has mentioned before, is what's happening systemically rather than loco-regionally. So for this gentleman, we have a pathology report saying it's a miracle cell, but we don't have the specimen for Rob to actually review and confirm his Merkel cell. So we actually got another biopsy for you to look at, Rob, and just to make sure that we are doing with Merkel cell carcinoma. Uh, we thought it was important to do that. Yeah, fair enough. And I'd just like to add at this point that mm. Merkel cell carcinoma is one of those things that when we see it, it should generate a phone call to the clinicians. That there are certain things, I think, in pathology that I try to drill into my registrars that, and this is one of them, that for Merkel cell carcinoma, you should get on the phone straight away to your, your clinical colleagues and let them know so it doesn't get lost in all the other pathology reports that might be received that day. So we had a good discussion at our MDT in terms of the best form of management. Um, He had quite significant local symptom with pain and swelling of his left arm. So in terms of definitive radiotherapy, it's feasible. So our recommendation at that time is consider definitive radiotherapy covering the primary side in the elbow, the in-transit area, all the way up to the axilla, the supercurricular fossa for him. Initially, I want to mention that we actually have a clinical trial open at the Melanoma Institute at the moment. Yes, exactly. So we have the IMAT trial. So this is an adjuvant trial for uh, early stage uh, milk cell carcinoma. And patients, they have to have, of course, definitive treatment, either surgery or radiotherapy. And then they are uh, randomized to Avilumab or placebo, uh, and the duration is six months. Uh, those trials are very, very important because we have to establish the role of immunotherapy in that case for those patients, because this is a very, very aggressive type of skin cancer. Cancer. And definitely those patients benefit from early treatment rather than to have a disseminated disease and it's much harder to treat later on. 
So I think we looked at two really interesting uh, in cases there of this disease, I think, which we all still come to grips with the, the best way to manage these patients, which I think uh, it's exciting that we are developing more treatments and getting more data. So hopefully over the, the coming years, we'll be able to sort of shed better lights and have better processes going through so people have a, have a definite pathway for getting effective treatment. I've enjoyed the chat today about Merkel cell carcinoma. I've learned a lot from my colleagues and I hope you have too. So we've discussed uh, both the pathological findings and the etiology and at-risk features and also the dilemma, I think, sometimes between what the appropriate management is both in terms of local regional management and also the exciting developments in a systemic setting. So thank you very much for your time today and I, I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you, Rob, Inesh, Angela and Kerwin for joining us for this great discussion today. You have been listening to Melanoma Insights for Professionals, brought to you by Melanoma Institute Australia and made possible by unrestricted educational grants from Pierre Fabre, Bristol Myers Squibb, Novartis and Merck Sharp and Dome Pharmaceuticals. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a colleague or friend and be sure to leave us a review. For more practice-changing education, sign up to our Melanoma Education portal at melanomaeducation.org.au. Thanks for listening.